Thanks for tuning in. Ham Talk Live will be on the air shortly. Please stand by. This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by Tower Electronics. For connectors, cables, and more, call 920-435-2973 or visit pl-259.com. And by ICOM. Heard it? Worked it? Logged it. Visit www.icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information about ICOM radios. It's Ham Radio. Good evening, everyone. It's time for Ham Talk Live, episode number 235, the new Drake Radio Exhibit at the Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting, recorded live on Thursday, November 5th, 2020. I'm your host, Neil Rapp, WB9VPG. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ham Talk Live. Tonight, we're joined by Jay Adrick, K8CJY. And Lee Height, K8CLI, and we will take your calls a little later in the show. Last week, Rob Sherwood, NC0B, was here to talk about the performance of some of the latest radios on the market. If you missed the show, you can listen anytime at HamTalkLive.com or your favorite podcast app or YouTube, or you can catch the rebroadcast of Ham Talk Live on WTWW. That's 5085. AM and that's on Saturday afternoons at about 3:30 p.m. Eastern time. So get your questions ready to go about uh, some Drake stuff uh, and the VOA Museum. Uh, if you're listening to us live on Thursday night, you can give us a call a little later on in the show. I'll go ahead and give you the number now though so you can have it ready to go and ready to punch in. It's 859 982 7373. Again, that phone number to call later on in the show, 859-982-7373. You can also send a question via Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is at HamTalkLive, and I'll be checking that throughout the evening as well. And I'll be back with Jay and Lee right after this word from ICOM America right here on Ham Talk Live. Ham for the holidays. ICOM's new ID52A and IC705 give hours of fun and enjoyment working your favorite bands this holiday season. ICOM's newest handheld amateur radio is the ID52A. Larger radio, larger color display, and louder audio. This VHF UHF digital transceiver is much more than just a replacement for the ID51, but also a new way of communicating. This color display is 2.3 inches for exceptional viewability, and the audio is 80 80% louder. This multifunction dual band D-Star transceiver supports DR mode for easy access to local repeaters based on internal GPS information as well as terminal and access point modes. The ID52A also has Bluetooth for audio and data control, providing improved mobility and control. And for the first time in the amateur radio industry, you can now send photos from a connected Android device. Other features include wideband receiver with a guaranteed range of 144 to 148 and 440 to 450 MHz. VHF on both bands, UHF on both bands, and one of each with the dual DV mode. Integrated GPS with grid square locator, micro SD card slot, micro USB. 
USB for data transfer programming and charge, and it's IPX7 waterproof. The ID52A is the perfect companion to the IC705. Both use compatible batteries and headsets, and you can use the same Android app for D-Star operation. The IC705 is the perfect sidekick for hams that like to enjoy what both the great indoors and outdoors have to offer. It's the perfect QRP companion. Base station features and functionality at the tip of your fingers in a portable packaging covering HF, 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. This compact rig weighs in at just over 2 pounds with RF direct sampling for most of the HF band and IF sampling for frequencies above 25 megahertz. It has a 4.3 inch touchscreen with live band scope and waterfall, 5 watts with the battery BP272 or 10 watts with a power supply, sideband CW, AM, FM, and full D-Star functions with a touchscreen, micro USB connector, Bluetooth, wireless LAN, integrated GPS and GPS logger, a micro SD card slot, the speaker mic HM243 comes standard and supports QRP operations. And the perfect accessory for the 705 is the optional backpack LC192 with a special compartment for your IC705 and room for accessories for soda activations or a day in the park, and it's shipping now. Visit icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information on ICOM radios. If a man says something in the woods and there are no women there, is he still wrong? You're listening to Ham Talk Live with Neil Rapp. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live. Thanks to ICOM for sponsoring the show. Make sure you check out all their equipment. Uh, yeah, no, the new 705, the new ID92A. Uh, check that out at icomamerica.com slash amateur. Tonight, my guests are Jay Adrick and Lee Height. Jay Adrick, KHCJY, has been active in amateur radio since 1961. He's a 56-plus-year veteran of the broadcast industry. In 2013, Jay retired from Harris Corporation as their vice president of broadcast technology, but continues as an industry consultant specializing in digital television systems, television spectrum issues, and the television spectrum repack. He is awarded, he's been awarded the Television Engineering Achievement Award by the National Association of Broadcasters, a fellow in the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, the IEEE Broadcast Television Society, and the Society of Broadcast Engineers. Jay serves as a board member of the Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting. Lee Height, KHCLI, is one of the lead docents and a board member at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting. Lee is a retired electronics engineer with a passion for investigating technical issues, occasionally surrounded with mystery and often bridging several fields of technology. Lee was first licensed in 1954 and is active with the Mason, Ohio, and Warren County CERT teams. And he also engineers wind chimes and biomass briquette. So Lee is, is the jack of all trades. And uh, if, if you get a chance to visit the museum, Lee is the guy you want to, to talk to because he has the history of everything. So Jay and Lee, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Neil. Good to, uh, to be here tonight. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Appreciate the invitation to come back, and uh, we're looking forward to the program. Well, I think, if I remember right, you've both been on the show, but not at the same time. So so we, we've got you both at the same time here. Well, uh, we're going to start off talking a little bit about some of the history of Drake, and then we're going to get into... Uh, the new exhibit that's been uh, revamped here. So we're going to start off with Jay. And uh, Jay, just just give us a, a brief history of the whole Drake thing that, that was in southwest Ohio and, uh, and how that all got started. Okay, very good. Well, Bob Drake is a native, was a native of Cincinnati and attended the University of Cincinnati 
uh, studied electrical engineering, and he graduated during the uh, Depression in the uh, uh, latter part of the uh, 1930s. Um, he uh, went to work uh, right away for uh, Dayton Radio, uh, a company that um, uh, built uh, radio products, <clears throat> and uh, was there a short time and then moved on to uh, work with Bill Lear uh, in uh, Lear's uh, uh, aviation uh, uh uh, department uh, and um, he was at Lear until uh, 1943. Of course, the war was going on, and uh, he took a leap of faith and um, started his own company, R.L. Drake, uh, based in in Dayton, Ohio. A uh, very small operation, but he was able to secure um, a number of military contracts to build uh, filters and um, uh, some power supplies and some test equipment and even a uh, VHF receiver. Um, so he, uh, the company flourished um, uh, under Bob during the, uh, the war years. And then, of course, uh, the war is over and uh, the military is, is not buying uh, products. Um, so he had to kind of uh, dig in and figure out how to keep the, the, the company going. And it was a, a pretty tough time for um, uh, the better part of almost 10 years um, he uh, resorted to um, uh, spring contacts for uh, General Electric uh, for apparently for relays and uh, that, that type of um, uh, electrical component. Um, did some uh, chokes and, and uh, coils and other uh, components for Delco. <clears throat> Delco, uh, of course, being based in Dayton, Ohio at that time. And uh, even uh, <laughs> resorted to... <laughs> Uh, building lamps for uh, SS Kresge. I know uh, Lee would love to find one of those lamps to uh, to add to the uh, collection, uh, but he hasn't been able to turn one up yet. Um, so, in the early fifties, um, uh, Bob, being a ham, um, came up with a couple of of amateur radio products. The uh, the first products uh, were filters because this new thing called television um, had uh, uh, a problem with interference from, from some uh, ham transmitters. And uh, he was very good at designing filters. So he designed uh, both high-pass filters um, for the television receivers and low-pass filters to uh, put on the output of the, uh, the ham transmitters. And uh, I... Definitely recall uh, having a Drake uh, filter on the output of my rig uh, back in the uh, 1960s. Um, the other products that he came up with, a phone patch and a Q multiplier to improve uh, uh, receiver performance. Uh, along about 1956, uh, Bob um, was really uh, struggling to keep the company going, and um, it uh, resulted in some health issues. And while he was out, confined to home, he designed a receiver for single sideband. And that receiver, known as the 1A, um, he built a, a, a prototype, uh, tried to um, sell the design under a license to manufacture uh, to a number of companies, the, uh, the old standards of the time, National and Hammerland and Hallicrafters, uh, and even uh, took it to RCA. None of them were um, were really interested. Um, so then he took it uh, to uh, uh, Gibby up at uh, Universal Service in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, Gibby said, um, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I will give you an order for the first 100 pieces. And uh, he also went over to Strepco, uh, Strepco Electronics, which uh, was based in Dayton. And um, the fellow that ran Shrepko, uh, Hyde Rubel, um, made a similar commitment. So the first 200 units were, uh, were spoken for. And uh, he was able to deliver first product in the latter part of 1957. Uh, it was uh, quite an advancement. First of all, uh, all the receivers in the time, uh, you know, starting with um, the big HRO uh, receivers and, of course, the uh, Collins 75A4, um, most of them were not designed for single sideband. 75A4, of course, was. 
but uh, very, very pricey and very large. <clears throat> Not so with the uh, 1A. The 1A was um, uh, the size of, uh, of a typical rural mailbox, uh, kind of shaped like that. It was uh, narrow, tall, and uh, uh, about the uh, same depth as a mailbox. Um, it was lightweight, under, uh, under 20 pounds, um, 12 tube radio, and designed specifically for single sideband because Bob had um, picked up on the benefits of single sideband and really thought it was a great, uh, great approach. So the receiver was an, an instant uh, success, uh, particularly out here in the Midwest. Uh, it took off and um, was uh, the start of um, Bob's uh, uh, real venture into amateur radio products. They followed that up in 1959 with the Drake 2A, and uh, shortly thereafter in 1961, the Drake 2B. All very familiar uh, uh, products for those of us who were around at that time in, uh, in amateur radio. The, um, the 2B, of course, was, was probably uh, one of the, the best sellers of the uh, uh, those three uh, products, and uh, I personally had a uh, 2B for a period of time uh, uh, in my early uh, ham radio days. Um, so the company uh, moved from Dayton down to Miamisburg, Ohio, uh, Miamisburg being a um, uh, smaller town located uh, southwest of uh, downtown Dayton, Ohio. Uh, started out in the Baum um, Opera House uh, building uh, adjacent to the Opera House, uh, where they uh, did their manufacturing of the uh, the 1A and the 2A and so forth, and that lasted for a while. Uh, but um, they needed a bigger facility um, as the uh, orders came in, and at the same time, uh, they set about um, designing a uh, a transceiver, uh, a transmitter receiver package. Uh, of course, Collins was out with the um, KWM-1 and KWM-2, uh, but uh, they were, again, very pricey, and Bob was looking for something that was affordable, kind of like the, the Henry Ford of, um, of automobiles, uh, something that would be affordable by the common man. Uh, he had an engineer by the name of uh, Sullivan that was working for him, and um, uh, they set about uh, developing what became the TR-3. And uh, as that matured uh, into a product, it was very obvious that um, the space they had at the Bomb uh, uh, Opera House was uh, was not uh, uh, big enough. So uh, they found new digs over at uh, 540 Richard Street, uh, not too far from the Opera House, and uh, a very famous address in um, in Miamisburg, where the majority of the amateur radio products uh, were uh, built. So that's um, kind of the start of, uh, of things. Uh, the TR3 came out in 1963. Um, so the three-line, strictly the TR3, um, then morphed into the four-line and uh, started with the R4, uh, R4 receiver, and um, then the uh, T4, which was a companion uh, transmitting device uh, that... Um, uh, slaved to the R4 receiver, and then, of course, the T4X, which was a standalone uh, transmitter. Uh, so those products um, uh, went through uh, several iterations. Uh, the, um, the R4 became the R4A, eventually the R4B and the R4C. Um, the T4, T4A, T4B, T4C, and so forth. Um, as the company uh, matured and uh, developed um, with those products, uh, there were a lot of uh, add-ons that were developed, such as um, uh, the uh, uh, transverters, uh, the TC6 uh, and the TC2 that uh, did VHF transverting from uh, 14 megahertz. Um, they had a, a converter called the CC1, actually a converter cabinet, with plug-in modules for uh, six and two meters and a calibrator uh, and power supply. Um, and then, of course, things like watt meters, um, antenna tuners, and uh, a very unique product that they came out with in the um, 
the mid-60s was the uh, C4, which was a station control. The C4 was um, a highly integrated uh, device that had a phone patch, um, had the rotor controller for a um, uh, uh, high gain or a um, uh, ham-am type uh, uh, rotator. Um, it had uh, switching, uh, power switching, so you could turn everything on and off from one common point. Um, had audio switching, a number of, uh, of uh, features all integrated into a single box. Uh, that was very, very unique. Also, a watt meter was, uh, was part of it. Uh, so that was a, a, a unique item for uh, ham radio at the time. So you could build a complete station with uh, all of the, uh, the products from Drake um, and uh, have a very functional uh, 160 all the way through a two meter uh, operation if you had all of the, uh, the right boxes. Um, also, they uh, developed um, two more transceivers, the TR4, and it came out in, in a number of different flavors over the period of time, a TR4, TR4C, TR4CW, which was a, um, a version that um, uh, incorporated a lot of CW functions. And then, of course, for uh, six meters, the uh, TR6, so those are all very popular um, products that uh, came out throughout the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, era of the 60s. Uh, and um, the, the four line actually continued into the early 70s. 1974, I think, was pretty much the, uh, the end of the, uh, uh, the four line. And uh, at that point in time, it was um, seeing quite a bit of competition from uh, the uh, Japanese, uh, products, which were solid state, uh, all the, um, the four line products were primarily tube. Uh, but as they progressed through towards the, the C version, um, there were a number of, uh, solid state additions, um, such as the PTO and, uh, other, um, parts of the, um, uh, uh, of the receiver and, uh, for that matter in the transmitter, uh, but it was not um, it was not a really a solid state rig. It was just uh, uh, a few a few editions of uh, of solid state. So the, um, the the progress from there was to go to a solid state um, radio, and that uh, that work was the uh, TR five, and eventually the seven line, the uh, TR seven, um, and that was an R seven. Uh, T, uh, that uh, also went with it. And of course, they, uh, uh, for the four line, they also developed um, uh, an amplifier, uh, the L4, uh, L4B, uh, which um, I would point out that uh, we have um, virtually all of those uh, components on display uh, as part of the Drake uh, uh, display out at the museum. We'll talk more about that as we. Uh, uh, move through the uh, through the evening. Lee's uh, has done a fabulous job of uh, pulling everything together. So, unfortunately, um, Bob. Uh, well, first, first of all, fortunately, Bob pulled in some great engineers to work uh, with the company. Um, one of the uh, young engineers who started actually as a high school student was uh, Steve Kugler, um, and Steve went on uh, eventually to own part of the company. Um, long after Bob had, had passed away. Um, so Bob um, uh, was um, quite, a, quite a boss, uh, kind of boss I think that you'd want to work for. Um, he, um, he was very personable and a fellow that, um, uh, that cared about his employees uh, and uh, really supported uh, their, uh, uh, their work and uh, their, their activities. And if they had problems. He was, uh, he was a guy that was uh, there to, uh, to help them. Um, so uh, Bob developed um, prostate cancer uh, in the uh, latter part of the uh, 1970s and uh, passed away, uh, I believe, in 1978. Um, might have been a little bit earlier than that. Anyway, um, so the company was left to his wife. Um, his wife um, 
Bob and his wife had uh, three sons and a daughter. Uh, one of the sons, Peter, uh, took over the company. Uh, the daughter, Nancy, um, also joined the company. And um, they uh, carried on uh, the, the operation. Uh, but um, the amateur radio activities um, uh, kind of started winding down in the, the latter part of the, uh, the 70s. Um, first of all, uh, there were a lot of things going on in the, the electronic world. Um, the satellite, home satellite business was beginning to uh, take off, and uh, they developed some products for that uh, area. Um, they had also developed some commercial gear uh, for uh, shipboard uh, uh, radio stations, uh, shipboard uh, maritime uh, operations, uh, where at that point in time, every, uh, every ship, uh, ocean-going uh, uh, vessel had to uh, have uh, a, an HF uh, communications link uh, this is obviously pre uh, pre satellite communications days. So the um, the company started to outgrow the Richard Street um, uh, plant, and uh, Peter uh, purchased some land over in Franklin, Ohio, and built a new uh, new plant uh, to uh, house the operation, particularly because of the. Uh, uh, the satellite work that they were getting into. Uh, I'd point out, by the way, that um, as they were developing the um, uh, the TR-7, there were two uh, two guys that um, went on to fame in another electronic area, both being hams, by the way. Uh, one is Jim Jager. Uh, Jim was a very talented, um, and still is, a very talented design engineer. Uh, who worked on the TR-7, and then uh, Mike Valentine. Um, Mike uh, is a a very active uh, ham today. Uh, He has his own company, Valentine Research, which uh, builds radar detectors. Uh, But uh, Mike and and Jim left Drake and started Cincinnati Microwave, which made the Escort radar detector. Uh, so there were a lot of a lot of folks that came out of the Drake operation, uh, as well as those that uh, were there for uh, a lengthy period of time. So the uh, the amateur radio products uh, wound down. The satellite products um, became the mainstay, and uh, another area that um, uh, they went into was to develop. Uh, cable TV products, but not for the big um, MSOs, the multiple system operators, but rather for um, the smaller cable systems. Like, for example, if you lived in an apartment building and the apartment uh, complex uh, put their own satellite antennas in and their own cable distribution and modulators for channels, as well as um, channel converters to bring in the local uh, stations. Um, The, uh, the correct name for that type of uh, product is SMA TV, small market antenna uh, TV. Um, and uh, they <clears throat> developed a whole series of those products, uh, both in the analog world and later as television went digital, uh, they developed a series of digital uh, cable products. And that's, um, that's kind of how uh, Drake ended up uh, being sold eventually, to um, a company called Blondertongue. Blondertongue um, was uh, or is a company uh, out of New Jersey that um, uh, made uh, modulators and channel converters and uh, demodulators and a lot of other products that are used in the cable television industry. And they ended up acquiring uh, R.L. Drake in uh, 2012, which... um, is kind of the the lead-in to where the uh, Drake collection at the VOA came about. Uh, Bob Drake was uh, was yeah. very proud that, of the products. 
That and, is uh, where we need to we need to take a break. We're already uh, over time for our break, so we're going to come back and we're going to take a look at uh, the exhibit itself and, and where where that came from, and take your calls right after this word from Tower Electronics right here on Ham Talk Live. <laughs> I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm having an antenna party and I ran out of PL259s. Oh, come in. Thank you. Would silver-plated PL259s from Tower Electronics be too good for your guests? Those will be fine. Thank you. You saved my life the other night. Oh, the PL259s from Tower Electronics? Yes, they were very successful at the antenna party. My antenna works like a charm. Then how can you ever thank me? I'll try to think of something. Don't be caught without PL259s. Visit Tower Electronics at a ham fest near you. Or visit them online anytime at pl-259.com. Or call 920-435-2973. They have adapters, cables, antennas, soldering supplies, and meters too. Join the conversation. Give us a call at 859-982-7373. Again, the number to call is 859-982-7373. Or, if you'd rather type than talk, tweet us at Ham Talk Live. Now, here's Neil Rapp with more Ham Talk Live. You're listening to Ham Talk Live, the most popular podcast with the words ham, talk, and live in the title. Here's your host, Neil Rapp. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live. Tower Electronics is going to be in Bedford, Indiana this weekend and actually had had dinner with Scott and Jill today. It's great to see them from Tower Electronics. They're just down the road here and uh, Bedford, Indiana Hamfest, uh, Mitchell, Indiana, November 7th. That's Saturday. And and by the way, I I I, I just just found out today, you know, we were we were having dinner and 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 we talked about a lot of things and caught up on a lot of things. But but I, I was able to talk Scott into a free bag with every purchase at, at Bedford this weekend. So so there you go. No, seriously, he said, if if you say you heard this on Ham Talk Live tonight, you will get a free gift at at the Bedford Ham Fest. So. So if you see Tower Electronics at Bedford, tell them you heard this on Ham Talk Live, and you'll you'll get a free surprise. Uh, coming up in their uh, schedule, they actually have several Ham Fests uh, as long as they uh, they keep going here. Uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, next weekend, November thirteenth and fourteenth. Um, November 20th and 21st, Montgomery, Alabama, December 4th and 5th in Ocala, Florida, and December 11th and 12th in Plant City, Florida. But you can visit them anytime, anywhere at pl-259.com. And Ham Talk Live is on the air every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here at hamtalklive.com. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And before we get back to Lee and Jay uh, talking about the... Uh, exhibit it is time for the ham talk live ham radio joke of the week within nine gsu now it's time for the ham talk live ham radio joke of the week the part of the show where rick tells us a ham radio joke the ham talk live ham radio joke of the week is brought to you by qrm labs now here's rick garrett in nine gsu with today's ham talk live joke of the week I inadvertently offended a fellow ham, so I sent him an apology in CW. It was in remorse code. This has been the Ham Talk Live Ham Radio Joke of the Week with Rick Garrett in 9 GSU. Tune in again next week for another joke from Rick. Okay, there we go. Oh, my goodness. Remorse 
code. Well, there, there it is. Thank you, Rick. You'll be back again next week for another, uh, joke of the week. So, uh, we'll take your calls here in just a little bit, but, uh, we still have, uh, a ton of stuff to talk about here. Um, so we're going to try to move through this quickly. So we have some time to, uh, to get some calls here, but, but Jay, you were, you were leading right into, and this is a, a, a tremendous story of how all this got started and, and, um, and what happened to the business. But, that really leads into the origins of this collection that's now at the Voice of America Museum um, in Westchester or uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, if you will. Um, so tell us a little bit about how all of that transitions into the exhibit. So um, in 2012, when the company was sold, uh, a lot of people recognize the fact that um, the collection that was on display in the lobby at the uh, the Franklin facility, um, which really started with Bob squirreling away one of everything <laughs> that came off the line um, in the in the closet, uh, it was beautifully displayed in the in the lobby of the company, and uh, uh, realized that that Blondertang really had no interest in 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 that collection, and it really needed to remain in southwestern Ohio um, to uh, memorialize the, uh, the great company that uh, Bob Drake uh, started. So we made a pitch to um, uh, Blondertongue, and it had a lot of help from uh, Steve Kubler and uh, Bill Frost, uh, two uh, former employees um, of R.L. Drake. And uh, we were able to... Um, strike a deal uh, for a permanent loan of the collection uh, to the museum. And um, actually, Steve and Bob um, uh, brought it down and, and helped um, uh, initially get it onto display. Now, it sat there for a number of years without a lot of um, guidance. And then along comes this guy by the name of Lee Height. And I think he should pick up and tell us a little bit more about what he's done. Yeah, Lee, uh, you, you put this together, but recently you really did a nice revamp on this. So tell us about the changes, uh, that you've made to this exhibit. Yeah, sure. We'll do uh, here, uh, Neil. And thanks, Jay. Uh, as, as Jay mentioned, when it uh, came down from Miamisburg, uh, out of the lobby for R.L. Drake, it was an enormous collection. Uh, we were somewhat space limited. And so, Everything in that collection got pushed into three display cabinets. And when you see the pictures from the R.L. Drake lobby, it, they had very large display cabinets. They had room for all of this. Uh, unfortunately, in our display cabinets, they were it was very crowded. Things were just kind of pushed in there. Uh, you could see them, uh, but it was it was awfully crowded. So. Uh, we took on the project of uh, taking everything out of the cabinets, and I got rid – I didn't get rid of I, I put up in our archives all the duplicates. We had a lot of duplicates. And so I wanted to, to keep just individual items uh, that were representative of, of when they were introduced. And so they've all been uh, staged uh, chronologically from the time the A1 – well, actually, from the time of the filters. We have, I, I think, one of every filter that uh, Bob designed. Uh, so we have the filters, um, and then beginning with the A1 receiver all the way through the uh, digital phase uh, spread out. And the unusual thing I did here that I have not done anywhere else in the museum is on there's a sign, um, there's signage on each piece of equipment, the model number, and the year that it was introduced. The unusual thing is I also include the weight of the device. And that's for a very specific reason. One of the things that Drake became very famous for was uh, solving the weight problem that was deliberately uh, designed by Hammerlin National and Helicrafters uh, to provide stability for their receivers. Their, uh, their local oscillator in the receiver was the traditional resonant circuit that you would tune through to, to do the pan, band pass tuning. And if you would bump the case, uh, I think anyone that's used an old receiver would kind of get familiar with the 
wobbling sound that could occur uh, as an instability in the receiver just because the physical uh, coil or capacitor was moving a little bit. Uh, Bob Drake did something highly uh, innovative, and he came up with this phase lock loop. And that reduced, uh, Hamilton and, and Helicraptors and National deliberately made their receivers heavy. Uh, uh, just as an example, uh, when you see the collection, I have at one end, I have a, a Helicraptors receiver that weighs 85 pounds. At the other end, I have a National that weighs 95 pounds. And Bob Drake, when he did the A1 uh, receiver, uh, as Jay mentioned, it's lightweight. It's 19 pounds. And technically, uh, specification-wise and performance-wise, far exceeded the performance of those three receivers in stability and performance also. So one of the reasons for putting weight on all this stuff was weight was a really big deal. And it's nice to see these smaller uh, products uh, perform as well or better than the, than the great big heavy ones. So it's uh, it's nicely it's nice to see the the spread of uh, products and innovativeness that that was going on at RL Drake at the time. Um, when you're when you come to the museum, uh, you, you'll see a lot of other things. We have a lot of other amateur events, a Collins collection and a collection of other uh, items. Uh, you'll see those, but one of the things you might consider doing is when you look at the all of this Drake equipment that's produced, you know, they they had a linear that they could produce a kilowatt. Um, is then step into the other room and see what it takes to produce two hundred and fifty thousand watts. We have opened up the Collins uh, transmitter, and you can literally walk through that, and it's an interesting uh, tour. Uh, just just getting B plus. How do you get seventeen thousand volts to the plate on a on a final amplifier tube? So uh, look at the Drake, and then uh, go over and look at the Collins, and you'll get a real education on on the evolution of uh, power in the in the, in the business. So that's kind of a snapshot, uh, Neil. Yeah, and and one thing that I really like about the the Collins, the the big one. Uh, which was uh, in use at, at the Voice of America um, facility, is that you've gone through and, and, and just, you know, labeled everything and pinpointed everything to where you can you can see every, every part. And uh, it, it really makes that uh, transmitter a, a, a lot more interesting when you can see um, just exactly where everything goes. And um, it, it's it's something you you need to see if you can if you can get there. Well, Jay, I know that uh, that collection from from Drake um, was not a an, an totally complete collection. I know that most of those were were like you know the first one off of the line, but but it wasn't complete. And there are some pretty rare items in there and some of those are yours so uh tell us about some of the items that people are going to see in this exhibit that they may not be able to see anywhere else well first of all we've got uh, some of the world war ii products so we've got um, uh, a power supply we've got uh, filters and um, i think a piece of test equipment um, products that um, uh, that you would not find in the typical amateur radio collection Again, Lee's looking very hard for that uh, Kresge lamp. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, uh, I have a fairly decent collection of uh, C-line, 4C line gear, um, and an L4B, and, of course, the, the TC6, TC2, and I have a TR6 and a TR4 and so forth. But Lee who twisted my arm real hard one day at a board meeting and uh, – I uh, I turned my L4B over, uh, which was beautifully restored, uh, over to uh, the museum uh, for display. Uh, that's not really that rare. Um, but I do also have, a, I would say, almost a mint condition C4 uh, station control with all of the peripherals. And um, uh, Lee was able to talk that uh, out of me. <laughs> so uh, those are uh, those are blank spots in the in the the ham shack here, and uh, 
they're uh, they're on display at um, uh, at the museum, but uh, happily sharing those with uh, with the ham community. And we very much appreciate that, Jay. They are uh, they're an important part of the collection. Yeah, I I didn't even remember the the rotor control and phone patch and everything integrate. I I I do not even remember that. I remember using the four line at field day growing up and uh but i just i I don't even remember that one so and i and and phone patches just fascinated me at that point so i i'm surprised i don't remember that one well we uh, we we have two or three phone patches on display oh that's cool well if somebody wants to come and see the exhibit lee how how would they do that and and find out more information about the museum. And, and if you want to operate uh, at the museum, how do you do that? We are open uh, every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m. And with the current uh, COVID-19 uh, situation, we do require a mask and all of the uh, personnel uh, on duty at the time, the docents. Uh, also wear a mask. So we are trying to be very uh, cautious and careful about the uh, virus. Uh, and the other th- a good thing is that over the last several years, I put signage on almost everything in that museum. So you can very much do a self-guided tour. Uh, we're not so much doing docent guided tours uh, because of the virus. Uh, they will be available to answer questions. But you can go through the Collins uh, the 250 kW transmitter, the control room, uh, the Drake exhibit, and the, what we call the gray history of wireless, which are two rooms full of, of uh, antique wireless. Uh, so Saturday and Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m., come see us, and I think you will be quite amazed at what's in that building. It, it really is a treat and, and, you know, bring your license along and you can, uh, get on, uh, some of the modern equipment and, and a little bit of, of vintage equipment, but there's, there's all kinds of modern icon stuff in there and, and some others, uh, that you can operate from the museum as well. So, uh, if you get a chance, Westchester, Ohio, north side of Cincinnati, um, Saturdays and Sundays, one to four Eastern time. And check them out at voamuseum.org. And it's time for your phone calls right now. So if you have a question for Jay or for Lee, give us a call at 859-982-7373. Again, it's 859-982-7373. Or you can tweet us at HamTalkLive. And if you're listening to us on WTWW, or on the podcast edition, you're you're not going to reach us because uh, we're doing this on Thursday night here, um, and we've, we're going to go overtime here a little bit and and answer some questions. So uh, we already have a call on the line. So let's go to the phones. Welcome to Ham Talk Live. Hello. Uh, hello. Yes, you're uh, on. My name is. Okay. My name is David W5XU. I'm in Covington, Louisiana, just north of New Orleans. I enjoyed the program. Hi, David. Well, uh, welcome. Uh, do you have a question here for uh, Jay or for Lee? Well, I have a comment. Uh, one, the TR5 was actually manufactured after the introduction of the TR-7. That's correct. Yes, um, you're right. The TR-7 came out uh, and was very expensive, and they, they basically made a solid-state TR-4. Oh, I hear myself on the computer. Let me turn that down. Uh, and also, the, the, uh, they were investigating a, a new radio, which would um, have uh, taken the place of the TR-7. They had a, a preliminary nomenclature of TR-8. Uh, I know of two of the prototypes of that TR-8. I have one of them. 
and the uh, the other is that uh, they also made a a, a prototype of a new amplifier called the L85, uh, and also the um, uh, they had a, a kind of a a modified TR7 that was, I believe, used as the test bed uh, for the TR8, and I have that as well. Uh, all oh, these are good. functional. All, the, all these are functional. However, they don't. There's no documentation. I have tried all over the world to see if I can find documentation on those radios, and they they're none to be had. Uh, so I, I just wanted to point it out. I enjoyed the talk, and I uh, was hoping that if anyone had any of that documentation, I could get a hold of them and see if I could get some of that. It's our understanding that the documentation for all of that was destroyed. Um, and I, I'm surprised to even hear that the, the, uh, the TR-8 um, uh, was out there. Uh, I, I understand that there was one that was actually destroyed uh, uh, when they uh, cleaned out all of the amateur radio stuff a couple of years after they, they ceased operations. I, re- I really That's appreciate I you calling told. Yeah, let's see uh, really, here. Uh, Lee may have some kind of lead on. So if, if anybody has a lead on it, it's Lee. So Yeah, I, I appreciate you calling in. I've been looking for a TR-8, and I, I realize they're rare, and I'm probably not going to find it. But I uh, uh, appreciate you calling in and identifying that you have one. I think that's really great. Uh, is it possible well, you could you. share a picture of that with us at some point in time? Well, remember, I, I can, I can, if you give me the, the link, I, I will send you some photographs of these radios. Uh, they're not uh, finished. They're, they're obviously in a, in a, um, in, let's see if this will work mode. If you recall. Sure. If you recall, the TR7 was supposed to come out with a, with a encoder based, uh, PTO. Correct. Uh, but they couldn't. They they couldn't develop, uh, according to what I have been told, they couldn't develop that uh, that encoder-based PTO uh, in time to put it into the TR7. So the TR7 basically used the same PTO as the uh, the R4 line, the, the TR4 line. Uh, then when it was eventually uh, perfected and made available. Uh, they use that in the TR5. So the TR5, although it's an earlier number, it's actually a later radio that came out after the TR7. And the TR5 has that that uh, solid-state encoder. Right. I have a TR5 as well, and it's very, very stable. Um, there aren't too many of those TR5s left because I understand... Uh, uh, Closing the factory down and and a, and a big accident where TR5s were scattered all over the road. There's only a couple of hundred of those radios left. You're, but, you're very much uh, correct, and that's one of the ones I'm looking for for the collection. We do not have a, a TR5. Well, every once in a while, they, can, they come up uh, for sale, Um if you send me your link, I will I will send you one that's on on for sale right now. However, the um, the performance of the TR5, except for the PTO, uh, is is not as as convenient as the uh, TR7. TR7 is a is a is a very easy, intuitive radio to use, and uh, it, there's still many many of those out and being used. So anyway, I just thought you may you may wish to know that uh, there was a step beyond uh, that uh, that apparently still exists. I understand that there are actually two of the prototype of the TR8s. Uh, I've only seen one, the one that I have, uh, but I understand that there's another one out there which I have never been able to identify where it is. But appreciate your show, sir. Thank you. Very good. Thank, uh, you, if you, thank you for calling. And, yeah, if you can send us, uh, uh, Jay, if you've got some place or if you want to sure. send them to me, I can forward them to you guys, what, whatever you want to do. Very, very simple. It's khcjy at org. 
Is that org or that? CJY? K-H-C-J-Y, right? K-H-C-J-Y at A-R-R-L.net. .net. All right, I'll send you some information. Good, thank you very much. Very good. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate your show. All right. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. All yep. right. Thanks well, for there. Calling. We go, guys. We 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 can we can add to it. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got another call. So let's see if we can take another call. Good evening. Welcome to Am Talk Live. Uh, good evening. My name is Peter E Seven Papa Sierra in Grand Forks. British Columbia, right on the U.S. border, about halfway across the province. And oh, good uh, evening. Thanks for calling. I wanted to say, uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's been uh, entertaining. Uh, Drake has been part of my life since 1970, February of 1970, when I got my first Drake 2C. So, uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, it's gone a bit haywire since then, uh, but that's fine. It's been a great love over the years. Um, Lee and Jay, I want to thank you for giving this presentation tonight. Um, very informative. Um, I have not been to the museum yet uh, in Cincinnati, and I look forward to doing that. I've been to Dayton many, many times. been involved with the forum, uh, the Drake Forum there for many years, but uh, have never made it down to the museum, the VOA Museum. And uh, next time we make it back to Xenia, um, count on it, uh, I'll be there. So I, I do look forward to uh, to visiting. A couple uh, of Peter, things I uh, just wanted to mention. That, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, very good, Peter. I was going to mention that uh, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of open house uh, time uh, starting on Thursday uh, all the way through Sunday afternoon at the museum uh, for the hams. And we even have uh, some special tours of the 500-kilowatt um, transmitter at WLW. Um, so the hams have um, have a great time at the museum over the uh, the hamvention uh, weekend. And, and I'll add, uh, Peter, uh, when you do come down, make sure you uh, let me know, and I will make sure I'm there and will personally uh, give you a tour. Uh, you can get my email off of QRZ. The call is uh, K8CLI Kilo 8 Charlie Lima India, and just use the email in there. Okay, uh, thanks, guys. And I, 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 uh, Lee, I think we've probably already contacted through Facebook, uh, and uh, I will do that for sure. Um, that would be really nice. There's a couple other things. I'm also part, or have been in the past part of the uh, CTA group as well, and uh, would love to see that Collins transmitter that you moved down there as well. Um, just a couple of things, Jay. You mentioned that the uh, four line uh, kind of wound up in uh, 1974. Actually, it went through to uh, 1979, uh, <clears throat> so another five years after that. Uh, the uh, the last of the R4Cs came out in 1979, according to the serial number database that uh, WB4HFN publishes. Uh, okay. And I personally personally uh, went with a friend of mine in December of 1978 to pick up his uh, R4, brand new R4C and FS4. Uh, he has one of the very latest ones, uh, so... <laughs> I uh, just wanted to uh, uh, throw that by there. Also, I've got a question. Um, I visited the uh, the factory many years ago. It's probably close to 20 years ago now, and uh, um, was able to get a, a, a very quick tour. Uh, not sure it was sanctioned, but uh, uh, was able to get through the com- through the tour. We actually saw the uh, prototype L6 amplifier that I believe. Believe uh, has ended up in Sindre's uh, hands. Sindre uh, Torp LA6OP over in Norway. Um, the um, uh, the interesting part was that when I went there, I saw something in the display uh, that appeared to be one of the product detectors that was made for the Collins 75A2 and 75A3 receiver. I had already picked up one of those because it just looks so much like a drake to me i thought this has got to be made by the drake factory i i got it for next to nothing at a ham fest one day many oh, it's got to be 25 years ago now and 
I I thought that was confirmed when it showed up when I, when I visited the the, the uh, display in the lobby at the factory and saw it there. I thought that confirmed it, but I'm, I'm I guess memory's fuzzy. I'm just wondering if you guys have seen that there by any chance. So many of I had a 75A2 um, with a product detector, and many of those uh, came from Universal Electronics up in Columbus, Ohio. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Gibby um, didn't have uh, uh, Bob Drake uh, build those for him, uh, but they actually, I believe, sold them under their their uh, Universal brand. Yeah, I I understand they were sold under under the Universal brand, but I highly suspect they were made by Drake. Yeah, I, I have no proof of that, but uh, you're you're probably quite correct because there was a strong relationship between uh, Bob and 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 uh, Gibby. Okay, well, if the if that uh, product detector shows up in the displays there, uh, the equipment that you have at the displays someday, maybe that will confirm that. I'm pretty sure I saw one there. Um, when I visited in 2000 or 2001 or two, somewhere back around then. Um, and uh, that is, that's a question that's been bugging me for years. I still have the product detector. For what, I don't know. I don't have a 75A2 or a 3. I've got a 1 and a 4, actually three of the 75A4s. Interesting enough, my 75A4s and the KWS1 sit very proudly next to my little uh, uh, 1A, <laughs> Uh, number 457, uh, which outperforms the 75A4s. And all uh, the CCA guys are going to kill me, but uh, I'm sorry um, <laughs> for a 20-pound box. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Uh, uh, it's yep. an amazing little receiver. Yes, Peter, I can, uh, Peter, I can confirm that product detector. I was reading a, a document written by uh, Bill Frost uh, a couple days ago, and in his uh, history... Drake, uh, he does talk about the uh, product detectors they made for Collins. Uh, so my, it's it's in the documentation. Uh, uh, great. That that was Jay, right? Uh, was that Jay? No, it's Lee. That's Lee. That Lee. Lee. Uh, oh, that's, yeah, he okay. made. Uh, okay, Lee. Yeah, um, it's in. If you uh, Go online and Google or search for Bill Frost. He's the uh, service manager, was the service oh, manager. Yeah. No, uh, he, yeah, I know Bill. Okay, well, Bill wrote a very nice history of Drake, and it's, you can download it. It's uh, It shows up very quickly on a search. Uh, download that, and you'll see that he talks about that product detector in his uh, history document. I think I have seen that, but I don't remember reading about that. I'll have to take a look at that again. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, okay, that's about all I've got, guys. I want to thank you for doing this. Um, it's always exciting uh, seeing something like this presented about the R.L. Drake Company, and uh, I appreciate being a part of it. And uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for stopping by, Peter. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for thanks for calling. Yep. Thanks for, Yeah, thanks for calling in. Yeah, and if you get to uh, if you get down to uh, Hamvention, uh, by all means, uh, go to the museum. Um, I, I go every year um, on Saturday night and uh, and really enjoy it and uh, kind of help uh, move some people in and out of there. So uh, if you get a chance, make sure you stop by. And and Lee, we'll you, were, you said you were sure. a. Uh, Lee, I think you were able to confirm, right, that that this is the largest single collection. Yes, uh, it's it's the largest physical collection in the world for R.L. Drake uh, equipment. Uh, no question about it. All right. Well, thanks for so much for the call. We appreciate it. Thank you. Seven three. All right. You too. Seven three. All right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll see if we have more calls. I'm not, uh, not seeing any tweets here. So let's see if we, we have anybody else lined up in the phone bank here. And if not, we're going to finish things up. Although I will say Jocelyn KD8VRX says hello by text. So I will throw that in. Um, 
Okay, guys, I think we're through everything, and, and we're, um, we're way over time. So let, let's uh, take some, some final comments. Go ahead, Lee. Uh, I'll make a final comment. The, the gentleman that just called uh, in by Bill Frost's uh, history paper, it's on page two. So download that document by Bill Frost, and then the product detector for that they made for Collins is on page two. But uh, other than that, thanks for having us on, Neil. Appreciate it. Been a great program. Okay, okay and Lee, remind everybody remind everybody how they can check out the museum. Yep, come on down uh, every Saturday and Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m. And if you plan to uh, come in, if you're out of town particularly, look me up on QRZ, the KCLI. My email is accurate. And let me know, and I will for sure be there uh, to give you a personal tour. And it's voamuseum.org. And, Jay, go right ahead. Okay, I would just point out, uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about um, about Drake, there's a great book out called A Family Affair, the R.L. Drake Story. Uh, it's written by a fellow that uh, I worked with for many years, uh, John Lockmiller, KB9AT. Um, John uh, came out of the broadcast industry, and uh, we worked together at Midwest Communications many, uh, many years back. But he has done a great job of uh, documenting some of the history and uh, – pulling together some other notes about the various products, including uh, some uh, tips on uh, uh, that. And I'll, I'd, I'd also point out, uh, you had Rob Sherwood on last week. Um, Rob and I grew up together. Um, he's originally from the Cincinnati area, and uh, uh, he has done a great job of uh, providing some upgrades um, for the particularly the R4 um, C-line receivers, Um one of the uh, the R4s that I have has been uh, um, fully upgraded with all of his uh, mods and kits. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of folks out there that support the, um, <clears throat> if you will, the, the refurbishment of uh, some of the four line gear, and uh, it's a great um, uh, hobby. Uh, I uh, I got into uh, refurbishing some of this stuff uh, shortly after I retired and. Uh, uh, did a lot of uh, a lot of work, not only on my own gear, but uh, uh, equipment for uh, for other uh, hams. I don't do that anymore, but uh, but it was a lot of fun for uh, a number of years. Uh, and Lee, um, thanks for your great input, and uh, Neil, um, I appreciate having us on board tonight. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here, and. Um, found out all kinds of things tonight so uh, we really appreciate you being here and uh, of course uh, we we feature the voice of american museum uh, every chance we get again it's voamuseum.org and um, if you get a chance come visit uh, we'd, we'd love to see you there and uh, hamvention is always a good time to do that uh, uh, just a, a little drive in the evening and uh, and the doors are open so uh, come on down to the to the Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting in Westchester. Well, that is a wrap for this week's edition of Ham Talk Live. Thanks to my guests, Jay Adrick, K8CJY, and Lee Height, K8CLI, and everyone out there in cyberspace for listening and calling in and invite you back next Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, when Marcel Streber, AI6MS, will be here to talk about remote license testing and for a list of all of our upcoming guests just go to hamtalklive.com and if you like ham talk live please consider leaving us a review on itunes or wherever you listen it helps others find us faster and and, and now we may have to to, to to do equal time here we, we may have to do a call-in show i don't know well, well we'll see how that goes so for now this is neil rap wb9 vpg saying 7375 and may the good dx be yours